We are family. And that's what we're gonna stay. I got important business out there today. And when I call you, I want you to come out there and shake your asses proper. You hear? Now get out there and make it look good. We are rolling. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast transforming the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. Boy, that sounds familiar. Words there from the most famous of all of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, I Have a Dream. We're recording this on Martin Luther King Day on Monday. If you're listening to this, um, when this drops on Wednesday on a historic inauguration day, a huge thank you. There's a lot of, what did Martin Luther King say here? There's lots of jangling Jangling discords. That's for sure. And for you to spend a little bit of time here with us, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Scott, before we were, um, before we turned on the microphones, we were speaking briefly over dinner about your curriculum coming up in black history, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King. I wonder, um, just as a preview of what we'll get into a little uh, later um, in the triloquy in the fourth movement of this opus, can you speak uh, briefly on what you learned as a school child about Martin Luther King Jr. and your perspective on his legacy now? Sure. Um, Marcus Garvey was, let's all go back to Africa. Malcolm X was by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. And Martin Luther King was the peaceful one. And that is where most of our focus went. Um, We did not get any information on his uh, attitudes and philosophies about capitalism. Right. That, That was never covered. And I understand that, that was a big cornerstone of his platform. That was, was a huge of it, anti-Vietnam War, which I'm, I right. guess you are more familiar with than the anti-capitalism. Yeah, but still not much, not much. They, the My curriculum and coming up in school kind of, you know, just made it seem like he was doing nothing but walking around and just talking about, let's just all be peaceful. And being peaceful got him shot anyway, didn't it? Anyway, mm-hmm. we'll get into it. Uh, this opus of Triloquy is made possible in part by Opera Philadelphia, presenting new film of Tyshawn Sori's Cycles of My Being on the Opera Philadelphia channel. Cycles of My Being is a searing song cycle that explores the realities of being a black man in America today, starring world-renowned tenor Lawrence Brownlee and with lyrics by Brownlee and acclaimed poet Terrence Hayes. The New York Times calls Cycles of my being a work of implacable strength and Sori's most personal and most explicitly black work. It asks the difficult question, what does it mean to love a country that doesn't love you back? Cycles of my being available on demand on the Opera Philadelphia channel. Watch it on TV, computer, and mobile devices. Rent cycles of my being or discover everything the channel has to offer with the season pass at operaphila.tv. That's opera, P-H-I-L-A, TV. Tyshawn Sori, Scott, if you remember, has actually been on Triloquy, mm-hmm. and we talked about Cycles of My Being, a really incredible work um, that I'm so grateful to have gotten uh, a little bit more insight on that is available there um, on the Opera Philadelphia channel. I forget um, the, the opus that he was on. It was, maybe it was about four or five uh, weeks ago, but it's the opus titled Cycles of My Being, if mm-hmm. you want to get a closer look at what Tyshawn and myself talked about. But definitely check that out um, on the Opera Philadelphia channel. Huge 
thanks to uh, everyone over there for support in Triloquy. Uh, the cold open, Scott, featured the words of Nichelle Nichols, a little black exploitation there, but she, of course, was a legendary and historic character on Star Trek. Uhura. Right? Yeah, yeah. Did you, were you, were you, those, were you uh, around watching that Star Trek? Yeah, but, you know, it was so, it, it just felt so campy, and, yep. you know, yep. I, I, I didn't really get into Star Trek. But that's a part of the, the charm of it, right? The campiness and the, dr- the dramatic you say, nature of it. If you yeah. say, sure. <laughs> and there's actually a Martin Luther King Jr. connection there that uh, we'll, we'll uh, get into today. If you really want to piss a Trekkie off, call it Star Trek. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, today's guest, I have the honor of sitting down with Rayanne Bryce Davis, a mezzo-soprano all around the world, just doing some incredible things. She's actually in Belgium right now oh, nice. as we record this. Um, and we talk about the Black Opera Alliance, which is a, a new organization uh, really shaking things up that I'm uh, going to uh, speak to a little later. And we're also going to hear some uh, music that uh, features uh, Rayanne. So looking forward to that. What sort of music uh, do you have for us this week? Well, yesterday being Sunday, by the time you listen to this, uh, was Ryoichi Sakamoto's birthday. And so I just went and started revisiting some of my favorite Sakamoto tracks and uh, revisited some of his first band, uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra. But there's one from uh, the title theme from a, uh, a movie that he was actually a co-star in mm-hmm. called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. So we'll be listening to that as well. And there's a there's a theme or an idea in that music that is really relevant to, you know. The... It, it lines up with a lot of what Dr. King was talking about. And I also want to shout out Marianne Combs, mm-hmm. a journalist most recently, you might remember, she, um, uh, she was working at Minnesota Public Radio, American Public Media, and she posted a story uh, by Celeste Headley from Medium.com, and it deals with uh, a whole group of signatories coming together with a vision and plan for transforming public media. A jam-packed opus. What's, what's, what are we at now? These announcements are getting longer and longer. Almost six minutes, okay, so right. wrap it up. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead. Movement one. So again, this is being recorded on Monday, Martin Luther King Day, dropping on Wednesday, Inauguration Day. Such as it is. Where, where, do, where do I start? Well, I'll tell you exactly where we'll start. We'll start with a sharp, a nice sharp um, in the arts, focusing on the music, specifically uh, music by uh, black composers. I'm reading here from the Afro Classical blog. If you don't, and just as a, a quick side note, if you aren't familiar with the website Afro Classical, I'll have a I'll have a link um, in the in the description of this incredible resource for black um, and diasporic classical music and classical conversations. Um, so I'm I'm reading from that website. Um, I'll have a link posted if you're not familiar. But the headline here says. As the president's own United States Marine Band pre-ceremony repertoire on January 20th will include Adolphus Hale Stork's fanfare on Amazing Grace. So for folks who don't know, Adolphus Hale Stork is a living black composer. I believe he's from Rochester, New York. Um, he lives and make his live and makes his living these days down in Virginia, has written all sorts of incredible music that speaks to the black experience in the United States. I think the piece that gets performed most or back when orchestras were on stage the piece of his that was performed most is called the american port of call and american port of call yeah, rather yeah um i've performed that a lot i've i'm featured on 
um, in a performance of it that's been featured on a performance today, you know, featuring the Gateways Festival Orchestra. Mm, I've had the pleasure of meeting Adolphus Hale Stork, so I'm um, a really important and a really significant uh, black composer out here. Um, among his many compositions um, are spirituals set for orchestra, arrangements of those old Negro spirituals um, that that uh, that make up the foundations of American classical music, something that we talk about all the time on this podcast. Uh, but another one of his uh, really incredible tunes is fanfare on amazing grace i've aired it on the radio i used to sneak it in all the time when Mm -hmm. i was working at npr and i think it's a really great thing to have at an inauguration Uh, we were talking earlier at uh, obama's inauguration which seems like a lifetime ago there was anthony mcgill and yo-yo ma and aretha franklin so having music um by adolphus hale stork especially this mu- this piece of music fanfare on amazing grace is really great for the moment if it were a normal or even a relatively normal moment agreed so we've honored hale stork you know i, I wanted to start by offering that sharp uh, to him and his legacy, just you know, making sure that, that that we honor that. But what's sad to me is that that's just not going to be the centerpiece or even one of the centerpieces from my perspective because we have, what, 25,000 National Guard members yeah. surrounding the place. There's no live audience. It's all based on what news networks show us and, and, and what they let us hear and it's, it's hard for me to even celebrate something like uh, Adolphus Hale Stork getting this platform when you think about the reality of the situation. And it's going to be difficult to have a celebratory attitude and think about the performers wanting to know up there on stage just exactly how safe are they in that moment. Exactly. And these are, you know, the uh, the United the president's own is a Marine ensemble. So these are folks who... Went through the yeah, ringer. They, yeah, they did. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure I couldn't do half of what they had to do. Yeah, they did. As far as the, the physicalness of it. But it's just, it's sad to me that this can't be one of those moments like the Yo-Yo Ma and Anthony McGill. We saw Barack Obama's inauguration because we're preoccupied with what's going to be happening around the peripheral. Scott, even if what we see on TV on Wednesday is uh, relatively peaceful and ceremonious and whatever, you know that there is all kinds of chaos happening at the peripheral along the military lines. Yeah, yeah. It's just boiling beneath the surface. Absolutely. And so what are you hoping for on Wednesday as far as uh, as far as what you see? Do Is there something that you need Biden or Harris to say in those opening speeches, something that you think needs to be affirmed? What is our best hope for Wednesday as far as taking in the inauguration? That's a great question. Um, I I don't, I'm not looking for anything. I hope that everything goes off. (laughs) Your hope is boring. Without, yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm looking forward to boring politics again. Um, I, I think that there's things that he needs to say to other people, that there's things that he needs to make clear to his, uh, uh, the people who didn't vote for him. Um, it's going to be a long road. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So uh, I, I'm not looking for anything. No, I'm looking for a peaceful, do you? Yes. All right. Let's go and have cake. <laughs> you know? Because they were saying that if they moved it indoors and made it this very legal with a judge and oath sort of thing, the rioters won. You've scared them indoors. Also, well, but, you're gonna... but you've scared them into having 25,000 folks out here with guns. So what's the difference? That may be true. But if they do it 
in if they do it at a, at a secret location then that's just going to fuel different conspiracy theories about you know is it even really biden you know that's or, taking or, or is it a Biden clone? Yeah, you know, there's, there's. We'll talk about clones later today. There's, actually. there's, there's seriously some stupid face-off sure. conspiracy theory that's floating around. And if you haven't seen that Nick Cage movie, then <laughs> good, good for you. But th- there's, there's crazy I stuff. About that movie. There is crazy stuff going on. And that movie starts with uh, the Hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. So just problematic, just from the start. Shit. <laughs> um, right. In addition to the Adolphus Hale stork at the inauguration, I also saw that Lady Gaga is supposed to be singing what they allege to be the national anthem. I the, tweeted Lady Gaga, I said, do the right thing, girl. The, the, <laughs> Sing the right one. The currently accepted. Uh, ver- yeah. Um, but so I'm like you, Scott, I hope to see some boring politics. If we only see boring politics, maybe that'll offer folks the opportunity to really pay attention to Adolphus Hale Stork's fanfare on Amazing Grace, really take in the message of it, the power of black classical music on that platform with a historic vice president, you know, as we've talked yeah. about before. Yeah. So I guess we'll see. As I said in the announcements, if you are choosing to listen to this on Wednesday, on Inauguration Day, again, thank you so much because it's been, and we'll get into this in the second movement, but it's been so hard to really think about music and the arts with as fucky as the world has been. So again, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Here's a little bit of Adolphus Hale Stork's Fanfare on Amazing Grace. So Celeste Hadley posted a really interesting uh, piece on Medium.com called An Anti-Racist Future, A Vision and Plan for the Transformation of Public Media. And Garrett, I think that this is the key part here where they talk about the vision and the plan, because not only does this point out the problems, but it also offers up some solutions. And I think that if you take the time to read this article, in particular, if you are interested in helping your organization, your company become more inclusive and more equitable, this might be a plan that you can modify or even use. Sure. Um, The thing that I really like about it is the way that it defines all of these issues. It defines racism. It defines white supremacy. It defines anti-racism, anti-racism, and then applies that to public media. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in 1968, there was a study done. Uh, let me find the, um, the Kerner Commission uh, concluded in 1968 that news media were not serving black communities. Ten years later, another study was done and focusing on public media. The first public report on public radio in 1978, decades ago, said, quote, public radio has been asleep at the transmitter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then what they do is they start going through the way, you know, they talk about the work ahead. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. Uh, but this is what we need to do if we're going to survive and 
really walk the walk, walk the talk that we've been doing all this time. My favorite thing is point number one in this open letter, amends. Mm -hmm. Okay. You got to say you're sorry. You got to admit that you screwed up and you have to say, we're, we're taking the steps now to fix it. And it goes on to step two, hiring promotions and pay structures. Three is training. Four is transforming coverage. And five is accountability. Uh, as of six hours ago, this article now has over 300 signatories have signed on. And there are six letters of support from major broadcasting organizations and, and arts organizations that have uh, supported this. So do you, uh, what, were you, what were you about to say? Do you know if um, your organization is one of the signatories? I, I do not know if they are one of the signatories. I can tell you that uh, there is a group from New York. Uh, a letter of support from the president and CEO of New York Public Radio. There is a letter of support from Nashville Public Radio, from Charles Fox, general manager of WCSU. Um, uh, at this point, I do not see NPR APM on here, but uh, a few of my colleagues have signed on as signatories. One of the things that I want to uh, make sure I lay out is when we talk about public radio, public media, this is directly related to the arts. Because I would say in most cities, public media, public radio is how Western classical and, and other genres get to people. I'm sure there are still Fair. some commercial classical stations, but for the most part, it's the public radio station. So right. for public media to be addressing anti-racism um, has a, a direct relationship with how classical music so-called and otherwise gets to most people, whether that's mm -hmm. just turning it on as background music or whatever. One of the things I wanted to highlight um, from this article. Um, I'm giving this. this a sharp, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, I, remember. <laughs> uh, I was a uh, side note. I was uh, I've been doing a better job of getting my bassoon out. And of course, it's those accidentals. I'm always missing those C-sharps. Anyway, um, I'm reading from the article here. It says, racism is not a knowledge problem. We know it's wrong. We've known that it's wrong for hundreds of years, but we're making racist decisions anyway. Racism is a behavior problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very important point because when folks think about their public radio station and wherever town they um, listen from, most folks, in my experience, just call it their NPR station. Sure. Because they're getting, you know, so. That's where they you get know, national Right, public, so just yeah. to you know, make sure that everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah, it's not that those folks in those institutions don't understand racism to some extent, because in most markets, those are seen as the more knowledgeable, the more read, the more smart, sure. fill in the blank. So it's not that they don't understand that, but the actions and the decisions are racist. If we want to hone in specifically on classical uh, radio on classical music radio. What are we talking about? What are these racist decisions that are being being made anyway when it comes to classical programming or or whatever? I don't know if I can really um, speak uh, totally to that, but I can tell you just from the way that it looks on my playlist. Sure, is that for thirty years of my career, I've been playing largely the same pieces played by the same bands. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, we get, you know every year we get a new four seasons for some reason. But um, I also you you sent me an article about um, Portland Public Radio is uh, partnering with Naxos to do more recordings mm -hmm. by Black artists and people of color. And I would I would say while this 
article, this, uh, this action plan that Celeste has laid out here is good. There's a few things that I would add to it. Number one is an outreach component because for so long you've been, we've been playing the music of old white men. Mm -hmm. You have to let the communities that you're trying to reach know that you want to reach out to them. So there has to be some sort of marketing campaign, some sort of outreach, uh, and, and a way to engage uh, the the communities that you're trying to reach out for. And that does not mean, you know, all these guests that we've had on before, it does not mean going into their community and playing Beethoven. Right. It means going into their community and playing music that speaks to them. Yeah, a, a while, a few weeks back, we had uh, uh, Kwani's Floyd. She came back for, right. for the second time. And one of the things that she said that stuck with me was that when you talk about bringing arts into a community, you have to understand that that community has art. It has art, right. Already. So, yeah, I agree with you, Scott. Uh, community engagement, really digging in to what is there and what speaks to them. I want to read one more thing from this article before we uh, move on. It says, we're not a mostly white and male industry because we consciously think white males are better, but because we live in a racist, sexist society that has conditioned us to view white male heteronormative as the standard. Racism and sexism are the norm. And I think I, I'm, I'm impressed by that being laid out, that's something that that's, we understand, right. but it's important to right. name that, especially when we talk about classical programming, because having a playlist, having a program, if you go to an orchestra concert that is all dead white males, should not seem normal, should not seem regular, right. but it does because um, of our conditioning. Sure. Yeah. And uh, again, that's why I say the, th the thing about this that I like, I mean, there, I know there's a lot of arts organizations that last summer were putting out all sorts of statements and, and just getting savaged online by yeah. them, right? This one lays out not only the problem, but some solutions. Yeah. And I think that that's the key and, and that they start, number one, amends. I, I, I was reading through and going, okay, now you, now I'm, I'm paying attention. Why is that important to be number one, in your opinion, making amends? Because you have to acknowledge the problem. That you, you, We've talked about this. You, I said the, one of the biggest issues that we face here is getting the leaders in many of these arts organizations to acknowledge that there's a problem, first and foremost. Then you got to convince them that they can actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so saying, hey, look, we realize that we made a mis we've made mistakes that we were wrong and we've been following down this uh, uh, suprem white supremacist and racist path and we're sorry and our path back starts now and then you can lay out what your individual things are but I think number one has to be amends in all cases yeah I'm uh I'm glad that this came out. And as you mentioned, the uh, folks over in Portland are digging into anti-racism and public media and classical music programming. Um, I'm excited. Uh, well, and I'll, I'll probably talk more about this uh, next week. But, you know, I'm on a Sphinx panel for the virtual conference, for, uh, virtual Sphinx conference this year with um, uh, Gretchen from the show From the Top from NPR, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Terrence McKnight from WQXR. And then I'm going to be there. We're talking about, you know, this exact topic. And it's just a shame that I, I, I'm going to speak plainly here. It's a shame that it couldn't be NPR, WQXR and APM, you know, the big 
institutions in classical public media really coming to the table to discuss and unpack this in in in, in front of what many uh, folks consider the epicenter of arts equity and diversity in classical music, you know, the Sphinx organization. I'm honored to be there um, and to speak on behalf of our team, Scott, and all the other independent content creators. Um, there's, but it's, it's just a shame that there are some organizations that haven't positioned themselves to really be in that conversation. To be a leader. Right, because it's a conversation that is happening in many, in many, many, many markets it's of public leave, radio. It's going to leave without you if you don't start having it on your own. It's, it's, just, so, it's just so hard to say sorry sometimes. And, and maybe there's even a song that speaks to oh, that. Oh, there is. Oh, is there? There is, yeah. It was written by Elton John. Well, Elton John performs it. I know that he has a writing partner. But yeah, it's called Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word. Maybe there's a, you're a guitarist, maybe there's a solo guitar version out of it out there. Triloquy Tracks playlist, Scott, I'll put the Elton John, ver- Triloquy Tracks 2021, mm-hmm. if you want to go over to Spotify and follow that, I'll, I'll put that there, but um, huge shout out to uh, Jean-Noël Rowe, solo guitar, who we just heard there. You you do a really good job, Scott, of putting me on to tunes that I would not have known otherwise. Shout out to Elton John, shout out to Jean for that solo guitar arrangement. It comes with age, Garrett, it comes with age. <laughs> It'll happen to you. Well, What uh, do you got? Well, wrapping up the uh, accidentals here, I'm going to put a flat next to the whitewashed legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, so again, we're recording on Martin Luther King Day. Uh, Since the last time we recorded was his actually birth date, uh, January 15th. Uh, is is uh, when he was born, and as as you kind of got into um, in the announcements at the beginning of this opus, peace, kumbaya is the is the portrait of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. that we get so much. But you know, going back and really listening to his speeches and reading his words, his writings, you can see that it was so much from that. I'm going to read a little bit uh, from this article I found at Vox.com. It's called "Don't Ask What Martin Luther King Jr. Would Do Today," and then ignore his real message. This is a bit of the beginning of the article. This year, America commemorates Martin Luther King Jr.'s life amid a chaotic and shameful time for democracy. Less than two weeks ago, insurrectionists stormed the United States Capitol after they were encouraged to take back the country by the sitting U.S. president holding fast to the false claim of election fraud. During moments of social and political turmoil, we often ask ourselves, what would King do? So that's the question I want to ask you. What do you think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would say about this Trump era that is coming to an end. <laughs> you see a preacher cussing that day, wouldn't you? It'd be a Baptist preacher cussing. <laughs> okay, bring, come and bring it, pull it, reel it back in, Scott. I haven't laughed like that in a while. That's really, really good. Well, what would what would Dr. King say about where we are? I don't know why. I, I don't know why you put me on the spot like this. <laughs> I, I think that everything that he had warned about is playing out. In, a, a preacher prophesying. Mm. 
He he did, right? So he called it. Let me read here. Uh, one of the first things I saw this morning was a tweet from Bernice King, his daughter. It says the following. Please don't act like everyone loved my father. He was assassinated. A 1967 poll reflected that he was one of the most hated men in America. Most hated. Many who quote him now and evoke him to deter justice today would likely hate and may already hate the authentic king. So, you know, we can spend a lot of time going into what went into the whitewashing of Dr. King's legacy. Uh, you know, uh, Dell was uh, reading about his anti-capitalist uh, stances um, mm -hmm. earlier today. Um, we mentioned earlier how uh, King stood against the war in Vietnam. Um, I think uh, if I can make any point here, I think when we talk about nonviolence, he was peaceful. They shot him too. Mm -hmm. Nonviolence got him shot. Outside of his hotel down in, in Memphis, Tennessee, where I'm from, I really encourage everyone, if you ever find yourself anywhere near Memphis, go to the National Civil Rights Museum. You will really learn the FBI's involvement in the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., how local news organizations played their role publishing not only his hotel, Scott, but his room number mm. Over, over local news so everyone knew. Doxing him even back then. Yeah. So the, 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 there's so much there. I, I can to tell just, you that you know, any, anyone sure who, mentioned it. Yeah, anyone who hates Colin Kaepernick and his movement, oh, they would despise Martin Luther King then. I mean, all these folks um, firing folks for breaking rules or making political opinions on uh, the Internet and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Do they not think they would not have also had a problem with Dr. King? You know, 100 mm, percent. Mm, 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 mm. So as we um, think about his legacy and especially moving into uh, Black History Month here, I just hope everyone will go back and find something by Dr. King, especially his writings that you haven't read before. Or if you uh, I know on my iTunes, if I search Martin Luther King Jr., there are albums that have compiled uh, recordings of his speeches where you can really hear something beyond I Have a Dream, as important of a speech, as, as historic of a speech that is. There's so much more. In the fourth movement here, Scott, we're going to talk a little bit about his letter from the Birmingham jail and the white moderate. But uh, as we uh, transition out of the first movement to the second movement, I wanted to uh, get into a little sci-fi. So I have a sci-fi uh, composition that I want to talk about in the second movement. Okay. But a lot of people don't know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, played a huge role in keeping um, uh, Nichelle Nichols, who gave us the downbeat today, on the show Star Trek as Uhura. So the story mm. that I heard was basically that she was trying to be on Broadway and do so-called serious theater. She found herself on this campy, kitschy space show and was ready to quit and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got a hold of her and said look sister you're the only black person in all the galaxy out there <laughs> and there's so many mm -hmm. folks looking up to you you have to stay on that show so of course she did would go on to do what the first interracial kiss on TV and, oh, that's and all, right. all sorts of other stuff so huge shout out to Nichelle Nichols um, the Star Trek of it, the black exploitation of it. I think there's something to learn from that. A and, lot. And her proximity to um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, uh, Miss Nichols um, is also a, a musician herself, uh, a, a, a beautiful singer. So I wanted to uh, transition here into, into the second movement with a performance by her. This tune is called Dark Side of the Moon, featuring the one and only Nichelle Nichols. 
striking a chord here in the second movement talking about music that moved us um and i wanted to start as i mentioned earlier with something a little intergalactic so maybe some folks know the show rick and morty a really phenomenal very smart uh i'll say uh animated show i discovered that show scott uh it used to come on really late at night on sunday nights and when i was getting off work from uh tending bar uh, in, in a previous life, I'd come home and, and sit down on the couch, roll a blunt and see what cartoon was on at 4 a.m. And it was this weird show called Rick and Morty. And it's grown and become way more popular. And there's a lot of uh, really great music connected with the show. Um, I wanted to lay out uh, for folks who don't know one of the plot points that surrounds this piece of music that I wanted to share. So um, at one point, uh, there's uh, one of you know the main characters, this scientist named Rick, his daughter, Beth begins to question whether or not she's a clone. She knows that her dad has the ability to clone her. Mm -hmm. She knows that in the back of her mind, she thinks what it would be like if she could be cloned so she could go out and fulfill her fantasies and live her life while a clone of her takes care of the family, which is heavy in itself. But he talks her down and is like, no, you're not a clone, whatever. In the last episode of the last season um, that we have, at least as we tape this, mm-hmm. um, we find out sort of matter-of-factly that Rick actually did clone his daughter, and there is a woman out in space solving s- space mysteries and space battles. Kicking ass. Who is, who is a, a Beth clone. So from that conversation, you know, I don't, you know, I encourage everyone to find the episode. It's the latest episode of Rick and Morty. She comes back to Earth and finds out that, you know, there is a clone of me and who is your original daughter. I won't spoil the end of the episode, but there's a piece of music um, that's featured uh, in the show that's called Don't Look Back. And it sort of speaks to the idea of having this life that used to be, maybe looking back to tomorrow versus the life you live today. Mm -hmm. Um, Listening to that um, piece of music, first of all, got me on the keyboard. When I hear some music that I feel like would translate really well into some arrangement that I can create, I go downstairs and sit down and figure that out. So as I'm sitting in front of my keyboard playing sort of the backtrack uh, to this tune, I get to thinking about how weird reality is right now with everything going on in Washington, the way that my career looks. I would have never imagined myself being able to make some sort of way as an independent um, content creator. And it makes me think that, you know, maybe I am Space Beth. Maybe I am Garrett, who has been cloned. And there's just some clone of me, maybe even down in Tennessee, playing in an orchestra or living an easier, simpler life. Do you have a genius grandfather, too? (laughs) My grandfather is very smart. He hasn't solved interdimensional travel or anything. But anyway. It's interesting that you bring this up now because we were talking over dinner about there was one spot that you would go to in Knoxville that 
if you went there now, you would expect to see yourself there. Yeah, it's, it's this weird thing, and I hope folks are following me because it, well, just roll, just go. It's, just it's go. really spacey to, th- to talk about clones. It's and a little heady. Morty show, but yeah, there there are times when I was listening to that tune where I was thinking, wow, if I got in the car right now and drove down to Knoxville, maybe I would see myself sitting down in the spot by the river, looking at the water and the mountains, not worrying about all of this complicated racial equity stuff that I'm doing. Maybe I'm the space Beth while the clone is down there, you know, living an easier life. So I wonder, have you uh, thought of yourself as uh, Earth Beth or Space Beth? Oh, are, it's, are, it's, are clear. it's clear that I'm Earth Beth clear you're the one living in the easier life than well living what i think is the easy way and having stunning realizations along the way that are frightening and uh confusing and make me wonder just how quote unquote easy the the clone existence that i'm living is you know, uh, it's it's like in the Matrix trying to determine whether you want to swallow the red pill or the blue pill, mm-hmm. you know, and clearly I have swallowed the one that keeps me in the Matrix. Hmm. Hmm. And I'm having glimpses of what is reality. If this is if if I am the clone, if there's if there's a Garrett out there really on the ground solving the problems and whatever, I don't even want to fathom because this existence right? can be challenging enough. So right? I, yep. I feel like I'm the one out in space. I'm you know the clone is somewhere living the easy life. Any anyway. Um, if you've never seen Rick and Morty, if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, all please of go this, look up that show. <laughs> all of all of this to get to a song, though. Talk about the song. Yeah, it, it just it just really encaps, uh, encapsulates that feeling uh, again of not looking back, accepting your current reality, but not being able to shake off. What if there is an easier way? What if I could be somewhere drinking a glass of wine instead of fighting? the racial equity fight you know it it Mm. really makes you it makes me think about that anyway the song is called uh don't look back here's a little bit of that it's featured on uh, the soundtrack to rick and morty It's interesting that the song that you picked deals with looking back or um, maybe being a little wistful about choices mm-hmm. or something like that, because um, I brought in uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto, who uh, his birthday was yesterday. As we and, record this. Yeah, as we record this. Uh, um, and an article that I found about him recently talks about, you know, he's dealing with uh, cancer diagnosis, the throat cancer diagnosis. And, and first of all, Ryuichi Sakamoto is... Ryuichi so. Sakamoto is a musician, composer, uh, instrumentalist, actor, um, auteur, I guess. You know, he's all of these things mm-hmm. that uh, really pioneered the uh, techno music or the electronic music sound in the late 1970s with a group called the Yellow Magic Orchestra. Okay. Um, but 
he talks about how art mirrors one's own life. And so that's where he is in his uh, composition and his musical career right now is dealing with health issues. But uh, this article from 52insights.com posits that this could also be uh, an analogy for the way that Ryoichi sees the world. He describes artists as canaries in the coal mine with the idea that they are highly attuned to the pertinent issues of our time. So as we talk about looking back, as we talk about the legacy of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, I think that this kind of fits, you know, that this music, um, uh, when you talk about uh, holding a mirror up to not only society, but to yourself, I think it's really important that we get good looks at ourselves yeah. so that we understand better how we can play a, a part in in this transition. So let me ask you this. I know one thing that you admitted was that this past week with insurrections on everybody's mind and whatever has been hard to look away from the news, to spend a lot of time with music mm-hmm. um, because you're checking out everything that's going on the new uh, in the news. So with this piece of music uh, that you want to share about uh, Sakamoto, how does that relate to that feeling of wanting to keep up with the news? Is this piece of music one that you would suggest as a, an escape? And you know how I feel about that. But as an escape, as something that can orally speak to the moment, how, how, does, how is that piece of music uh, contextualized in this moment in American history? Well, I don't know. <laughs> this moment? Man, you just put me on the spot for a whole bunch of stuff. Well, the piece that... Uh, it's not my favorite, but mm-hmm. it is his most popular piece called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And it comes from a movie of the same name, which features David Bowie. Uh, this is one of the films where Ryuichi is on screen. He plays uh, the honor-bound Captain Yanoi. And in the middle of it all is a translator, Lieutenant Colonel John Lawrence, played by Tom Conti. And uh, according to the uh, IMDb page, he attempts to find common ground between the British and the Japanese. And I wish that 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 it was that simple to find common ground. I know that it's not. And we have to keep on trying. We have to keep on making the effort to find that common ground, which is why uh, I not only is it a beautiful piece of music, but I think it's poignant right now politically socially and especially on uh martin luther king jr's um martin luther king jr day common ground that you speak to, Scott, is difficult to find because of the lack of there being a, uh, a common foundation of facts, like a, a common starting that's point. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the difficult thing about it. And uh, even when it comes to the, the history of slavery, there isn't always that common ground because folks will say, well, the Civil War was actually about fill in the blank. It was actually about states' rights is what you'll hear a lot of people say. And okay, slavery. States' rights to do what? 
to have slaves. Is, is always my question. Anyway. No, no, no. It's economics, right? <laughs> right? The economics of slavery. Right. right. And and when you talk about that, you know, common ground, that's just what I think about, especially when it comes to um, today's guests. So as I mentioned earlier, um, today I, I, I speak with Rayanne Bryce Davis. I first met Rayanne over the summer. Uh, when I collaborated with the Lead Society, um, a new piece of music composed by Anthony Davis um, in light of the murder of George Floyd, I hosted that uh, digital premiere. Uh, well, uh, Rayanne invited me to be a part of the Black Opera Alliance of their uh, leadership team, and I thought I'd read the mission statement of the Black Opera Alliance. It says, the mission of the Black Opera Alliance is to empower Black classical artists and administrators by exposing systems of racial inequity and underrepresentation of the African diaspora and all facets of the industry and challenging institutions to implement drastic reform. What they're doing is pulling together data about what opera houses and opera institutions are doing and showing the world which ones are doing it right and which ones ain't. And I think that's a very direct uh, point of action, uh, a really uh, equitable way to celebrate the um, folks that are that are celebrating us, and to put a, a little fire under the feet of the folks who aren't. So um, I talk with Rayanne about the Black Opera Alliance, um, her experiences um, as a black opera singer, um, not only here in the United States uh, and, and around the globe, the different implications. You know, Scott, something that you may not think about, a black opera singer, especially when we're talking about costumes and makeup and hair, there has to be someone behind the scenes who knows how to deal with black hair. Mm -hmm. I couldn't just show up and, and throw a wig on my head if I'm in an, in an opera. Somebody has to know how to deal with this, right? So that's what we're talking about with the Black Opera Alliance, really having folks um, who know how to do equitable work at every uh, level. I think we even uh, started the conversation by talking a little bit about um, uh, fat phobia and body politics, as we were talking about last week um, in, in opera and the vocal arts. But uh, what I wanted to transition with um, into my conversation with Rayanne um, is a recording that she's actually involved with. So not too long ago, composer Paul Moravitz uh, put out a recording called Sanctuary Road. Maybe you're familiar um, with, with that recording. I know I used to play it a little bit uh, at NPR. It's an oratorio that celebrates and highlights um, William Still, not to be uh, confused with William Grant Still, the mm -hmm. composer, but William Still, the Underground Railroad conductor, as we call him. So there's music in here about being on the Underground Railroad, some of the stresses and um, drama so we're going to transition here with an excerpt from that piece of music, Sanctuary Road, called Reward. It has this very active feeling, this stressful and anxious feeling that I'm sure folks must have been feeling on the underground. Can, Scott, can you imagine running and hoping that the hound dogs and... I can only imagine. But thanks to this piece of music by Paul Moravitz, we can at least have some sort of artistic depiction. And Rayanne played a huge uh, role in this recording. So... Um, I, I thought we would listen to a little bit of it here um, as we transition into my conversation with Rayanne Bryce Davis. It was such an incredible 
experience to be a part of Sanctuary Road. Um, just in terms of the stories that are involved in that work, um, I, I got to sing um, an aria about Ellen Craft, who was this incredible, strong, brilliant woman who took her future into her own hands as a slave and boarded a train disguised as a white man and kind of bandaged herself. So if anyone asked her to sign something, she wouldn't mm. have to. She's like, look, my hand. Thinking of everything. <laughs> you know, in the face of so much danger, she faced everything head on in order to gain freedom with her, with her love, with her husband. And so I think stories like that are essential in knowing that we took our destiny into our own hands. History isn't just, there were sad people who were slaves and all of right. the stories and all the documentaries that we see. And, and I grew up as a lone black girl in, a, in an all white class. And whenever they would talk about black people, everybody turns around and it's about <laughs> slavery and it's about, you know. And so just stories like this that are so uplifting about people who were completely empowered are just so important to me and to young people growing up. And so I'm so excited that these stories are being told and that together we celebrate Martin Luther King and, you know, we celebrate all of his legacy. I think more stories are coming out now that aren't just the cliche, I have a dream and right. that is all, you know, cause he was so much more than that. He was, he was an activist and some of his ideas today would still be revolutionary, but we like to forget those kinds of little things and be yeah. like, no, no, it was only the let's all hold hands, mm -hmm. only that part, you know? And so I love so much that the conversation has expanded past just that superficial handholding right. and into these real conversations, these, and meeting these historical figures that have been so long forgotten. Yeah. When you tell the story of Ellen Craft, what I was thinking about in my mind was the story of um, Leonora in, in Fidelio, you know, dressing up in men's clothes for the mm -hmm. for the pursuit of love and freedom. Right. It's there, 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 There's so many connections. It's really beautiful. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to um, ask you about before we got into the meat of our conversation deals with something that I was talking about last week with the guests. We were talking about body politics, fat phobia, um, and all of those things as the so-called last acceptable form of discrimination. You know, we talk mm -hmm. about racism, but we don't talk about body politics and where it intersects. Of course, we have that famous phrase, it's not over till the fat lady sings. I wonder if uh, if you could just speak to that. You know, is that a problematic phrase? How does body politics, um, or how's, how has body politics played into your career as an opera singer? Hmm. Um, you know, I'm always slight, I'm, I'm not completely disappointed when that phrase comes up. At least they're thinking about opera, <laughs> you know? <laughs> In the general population, it might not be an ideal statement, but at least we're part of the conversation. And so it's easier to change uh, uh, an idea of something rather than introducing it for the first time sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so how has it played into my career? Um, I mean, from the very beginning, I remember some of my first lessons, uh, my teacher told me, okay, you're okay right now, but don't you dare get any bigger or else you'll never wow. have a career. 
And I was like, wow. 18 years old, I'm like, uh, okay, I'll try. I'll sure try. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and that's kind of part of the part of the trajectory of most young singers these days. Um, I know there was a time that I very consciously gained a bit of weight and was like, okay, I'm no longer a Carmen. Like I knew mm. it very, <laughs> very clearly when was Carmen and when was not Carmen and nothing about my insides had changed. Nothing about my voice had changed. Nothing mm -hmm. about my personality had changed, but I know we know very clearly what the industry standards are. And so, um, it's always revolutionary to me when I get to see casting directors make decisions that are bolder than that, than just the, the cliche trying to run away from the stereotype that people in opera are fat. So therefore mm -hmm. let's only put skinny people on stage. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they cast according to voices, according to acting, it's, so fresh and so beautiful. I got to see this Lohengrin here in Antwerp um, with Irena Teorin and Craig, uh, oh, Lord, I might be massacring their names, Klo-Klof, <laughs> alas, <laughs> if he hears it, I love you, your voice is amazing. Yeah, shout I don't out know to how you. To yeah. <laughs> <laughs> alas, but anyway, you know, they are not tiny people. Mm-hmm. And they got on that stage and they did one of the hottest sex scenes I've ever seen in my life. Right. So, and it wasn't about size. It was about passion and it was about being real. And the voices were just pouring at you while you were sitting in the house. And in that moment, there is no one who can sit there. Well, probably there are people, but as a listener, it's just such an impression when the voice is aligned and the believability is there because the singer is so grounded in themselves, mm -hmm. there's nothing that can beat that. Yeah. And I think one of the saddest things about fat phobia is it takes that power away from so many of our young singers. You know, I wish instead of telling young singers, you can't gain weight, we would just get them uh, a membership to a pole dancing class, <laughs> you know, like instead just like, Hey, go embrace your body. Like be, be one with yourself and also be healthy. You know, health being healthy is ideal. You, there is an element of, you have to have a certain amount of stamina to be able to do the staging and shows these days, you know, yeah. um, and be able to still sing. Well, that's real. That's a real part of the career. And it is real that you have to be able to be believable in the role, you know? Yeah. But it's not a fine line as fat and skinny. There are a lot of skinny people that are not sexual at all on stage and being skinny did not help them. Right, so right. we've simplified that conversation in a way that is really tragic. And you know, those pole dancing classes could come in handy for a very adventurous staging of, of Salome or, or some other. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm gonna since since you made things sexy, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue in in that light. I went back into my notes from our previous collaboration over the summer to sort of think about how I wanted to contextualize this conversation. And the first thing that I wrote down concerning your musicianship is the depth 
and the richness and the beauty of your mezzo voice. It's just the first thing that I noticed. I wonder what's life like for a mezzo. I'm sure a lot of folks um, who may not be as familiar with the tradition of opera picture the soprano as the lead role and the star, but surely there are moments for the mezzo as well. Well, surely there are, and I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to find them all. <laughs> um, I mean, what's it like as a mezzo? I love being a mezzo. Uh, frankly, I think if I were a light soprano, I would not be an opera singer. Hmm. Um, just because my first impression of opera ever was uh, La Boheme. And I was so frustrated as a young person my first opera and I was like what is wrong with this flimsy woman like women are not like that in real life I'm sick and then she continues to just be sick for the next four hours and I'm like yeah. die already <laughs> yeah. you know? if I was expected to sing all of those roles in that way my whole career I wouldn't have done it I wouldn't have done it so I was kind of saved by being a mezzo because we therefore automatically usually play the bad <laughs> the villain Right. Or, you know, there's a saying, the witches, bitches, and boys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, so at least we're interesting. Um, yeah. It's it's rather um, tragic, the archetypes that there are in, in opera for women. Uh, you are either a damsel in distress or you're evil, and therefore you're probably going to die or be executed at the end because, mm -hmm. you know, can't actually do that. We still need morality and bad women who don't behave. <laughs> you know, right? So, so the, in a lot of our older, I have a friend Lila Palmer who this is like her world. Like she talks about all these archetypes for women in in opera. And sometime go go have a listen to what what she has to say. But um, I was grateful to be at least have interesting roles. Um, we do have quite a bit of lead roles in Verdi, um, in Wagner, um, the Czech give us very interesting okay. characters. In general, the Czech give, like Janáček often creates very strong women, uh, female roles, which I, I love. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of fortunate to be a very specific kind of mezzo and uh, as a dramatic mezzo, uh, who is kind of a Zwischenfach, where I live in that little middle of mezzo and soprano land, sure. and I can kind of go and visit both. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a whole world of rep that I can kind of visit soprano land and then be like, mm -hmm. okay, bye, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in, the, in that yeah. world of rep, um, we're beginning to discover more music that doesn't only speak to the black experience, but is written by black folk. Um, over the course of your career so far, have you found um, more integration of black art? Have you had the opportunity to sing more? Has it stagnated? What, what, what's that been like for you? Um, I do see more things that are programmed these days. There's a strange um, dichotomy very often uh, in casting. And it happens rather young, and it usually happens around the show Porgy and Bess, mm. um, that if you do, there's a big warning when you're in school, they're like, don't do Porgy and Bess, or if you do it, like, don't tell anyone. <laughs> because <laughs> because there, there's very much a possibility to be pigeonholed in that rep, right? But when you do live in that world, you're more often to be reached out to when there are these wonderfully Afrocentric projects. 
And I kind of ran away from that world and therefore went more the European track. And Mm -hmm. therefore, I hadn't really gotten to be involved in a lot of the exciting projects that are happening. Um, And I desperately want to. (laughs) But for for the I'm on the track of like, no, you are Verity girl. You think <laughs> legit rep, that's what you do, quote unquote legit. Yeah, so call it legit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you do, you know? So which which was a decision I made very early on. So the time that I find to to do my supporting us and our music is in recital. Mm. So when I have a recital, I will try to perform as much music by black composers as I can. And I myself am learning so much new music, so many new composers, and what a wealth of history we have as Black people. Yeah. And to sort of frame, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Black Opera Alliance and the work that that institution is doing. But to sort of frame that, you know, lack of diverse uh, diverse programming is one thing, but there are so many other uh, challenges within the world of opera that I'm sure a lot of people don't think about. One thing that's coming to mind for me immediately is black hair backstage. Mm-hmm. Do, do stagehands, do makeup and costume people know how to deal with our bodies and our hair? and what makes us look great. I wonder if you could speak to that and maybe some of the other unique challenges um, in opera for Black folks that the general population may not even think about. Right. Um, I mean, the hair thing is very real. <laughs> I mean, so and, and so what so what is it if, if you have a, a role and the character has this this flowing mop, you know, do, do you have to, you know, take it upon yourself to make sure that that happens? Are, are opera companies in your experience making sure that someone knows how to sew in or put on or glue on or whatever, you know, you have to do? Yeah, um, it varies from house to house. Um Sometimes you go in, I'll tell, for instance, my experience um, in Antwerp, which is a positive one. Mm -hmm. So my first time there, I don't think they had ever dealt with natural hair before, but they scheduled me right at the beginning for an hour session. And they're like, okay, we're going to do this. You know, these three (laughs) Belgian ladies, like, we're going to figure this out. You know, they had like YouTube ready. They were like, we have watched this video. What do you think is ideal? Like they were just ready to learn and super eager. And I think that's a lot of what's, what's missing in the industry. Sometimes it's hard for us as human, human beings when we don't know how to do something Mm -hmm. um, to just admit that and therefore go learn. Sometimes there's just like, okay, I'm not going to deal with that. And that what was, that's what was so beautiful about that team is they took the time they went and learned. And every single show that I've been in since then, there is a young Belgian lady there with her hands all in my very natural, very kinky hair doing cornrows. You know, and if there's somebody new on rotation, there's an older one there to train. Like, this is how you do it. Okay. This is, you dig in here and then, and you, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's fabulous. So that hair is very real. It's definitely one of the specific things to opera. Um, lighting is also really legit. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because um, it's hard as a lay person to say what's wrong with a stage, but you just can't see someone and they're always kind of in the shadows and automatically you don't really connect with them because you can't see their eyes. And that's something that's just a lighting person doesn't know what to do with black skin, you know? Um, Of course, true for makeup as well. Um, Yeah, lots of 
opera specific um, things there in terms of appearance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, those and other things is what the Black Opera Alliance is, uh, has been built to address and, and, and many other things. I wonder if you can uh, tell the folks, what is the Black Opera Alliance? So the Black Opera Alliance is a group of over 700 um, opera artists and administrators that have gotten together to make change in the industry, to kind of make the world what we want to see. Um, it was born this summer in the, in the middle of all the turmoil um, in the murder, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And there were all these super important conversations happening. And um, we got together and had a phone call and just like what because of course there are some people that are always called more often than others mm -hmm. so they were like what do you what do you as a community need from us and so we had this really essential conversation and that was the the <laughs> the the birthplace sure yeah the impetus yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh you know black people are not a monolith. As much as we love to celebrate each other, we come with so many different ideas and, and perspectives. You know, what's your response to um, Black folk who don't necessarily see the need for something like the Black Opera Alliance? I'll speak from the instrumental perspective. We have folks like Anthony McGill, principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic, you know, so many other black musicians who managed to make it through those traditional pipelines and find success. Um, on the other hand, you have so many black musicians who need the pipeline, who need the pathway to be broadened to fit ourselves. So, you know, what, what, what is your response to this idea of, you know, some people needing things like Black Opera Alliance and, and some people not uh, needing it? I know that can kind of be a tricky uh, conversation because we we have to talk about what we how we define excellence, how we define access. There's there's so many things that, you know, I'm sure that you have to deal with um, in working with BOA. Yeah, I think the fact that there are all these different opinions uh, reflects exactly why there is a need for an overarching organization that is serving as kind of the watchdogs of the industry in this uh, issue of um, representing the, the, the Black community. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's something very beautiful about being able to take a vote among 700 people and seeing what it is that the community would like to do. There's, it's imperative to know what all of our celebrities are doing and uh, all the work they're doing, but there's also something very beautiful about knowing as a community what is, what is, uh, what is needed and what is essential. And, that's, um, you know, we had some conversations with opera um, general directors in the mm -hmm. last few months. And, and one of them mentioned, well, I talked to the Black people that I know, and they said this, hmm. you know. And I was like, well, that's, that's lovely. I'm glad that, you know, you have some Black friends. <laughs> First and foremost. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> But there are also other Black people in the world, and 
this is the way that many of them feel. And, mm. and so it's very important to have that perspective because as you were saying before, black people are not a monolith and also your audiences are not a monolith that and they too. want to see different things, different perspectives. And so it's so important to know all of the various needs and desires that your community of artists and your community of, of audiences really need. When you use that phrase, uh, well, you use the word knowing. And, and what that brought me to was what we're taught as musicians in our training and what we're not taught. We're taught how to practice and to, to, to do everything we uh, need to be musically successful. We aren't taught how to fill out 501c3 paperwork. We aren't yeah. taught necessarily how to apply um, for grants and all of those things and more were key points in the formation of the Black Opera Alliance. I wonder um, what are some of the non-profity sorts of things that you've learned or, or noticed along the way, different costs, uh, application processes, things like mm -hmm. that. Well, we are fortunate. So we currently have a leadership council of eight and so within that, there is a wealth of knowledge, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I have been spending the last, you know, 15 years of my life honing myself as an artist and doing all the hustle I can to get people to know who I am, which mm. actually requires a vast amount of skills. And so I have been using my skills as a hustler. <laughs> For Black Opera Alliance, actually, yep. you yep. know, and we have people who are in-house who have this knowledge of um, how to fill out this grant paperwork, et cetera, um, who are handling that aspect. Whereas some of the things I've learned, like I've been involved in writing press releases, um, and that was something I had to learn as I go, um, even even we're launching a new marketing strategy. And so I had to go into the industry and uh, find several candidates for us to interview and uh, go into worlds of this, find this wonderful organization called the Black Marketing, Black Marketers Association. And from there, uh, in, find can candidates for the council to interview. So it's been, it's been a huge mixed bag of just uh, getting into all different things than I necessarily knew how to do before. Hmm. If you could go back, would you have deleted one of your music history classes or something to take up music marketing or creating a nonprofit in music course? Most definitely. Hmm. Most definitely. I mean, I was actually fortunate. I started off as a business major. So I do have a bit of that grounding in terms of marketing and, and entrepreneurship. And that's what I've thrown into creating my own brand as a singer. Um, and so therefore it wasn't a huge leap to go into creating the brand of Black Opera Alliance, mm -hmm. which I was, I got to be a part of in the early stages. Now a professional will help us take over. But you know, when it was just young and exciting and fiery and like we needed to do something and all of a sudden I just made an email account and uh, the New York Times is in our e email like asking for our opinion on things, you know, when it was on that level and everything was young and fire, you know, it was just so exciting to be a part of it and um, to just learn as I went and, be grateful that I have part of a team of people who who could cover the rest. 
One of the key parts of BOA is the pledge that the organization is hoping that more and more opera houses will sign on to. You know, this pledge has just key points on how we can move the industry forward. Uh, what do you consider a key point or key points um, in that pledge? Um, Everything is important, obviously. All, yeah, all these are definitely <laughs> important. But I think one of the, my... Um, one of the strongest ones for me is the importance of not just having black people on stage as a priority, also giving black people agency to tell their own stories in hiring black creators, mm -hmm. which means directors, dramaturgs, librettists, um, conductors, um, all of that is essential in creating uh, a true to the experience um, opera. Um, yeah. Also, in terms of the company, you have to have perspective within the company. So you need to diversify the board and the administration. We have to have Black people in those positions as well, so that they have agency to be able to help steer the industry in a positive direction. You know, everything is so lovely right now everybody's so gung-ho about black lives matter and releasing all of these statements and that's so important and so well and good but next year when it isn't so hot topic mm -hmm. we still need people in those spaces who still have power to keep the momentum going in these ways and that's that's what black opera alliance is doing that's why we're here for the long haul and we've been fortunate to um gained this uh, grant from the Sphinx uh, uh, Fund. Uh, venture Fund, I believe, venture right? Fund. Yep. Thank you, the Sphinx Venture Fund. We've received this amazing grant so that we really can do that in a, in a detailed way. Um, we're now partnering with uh, TRG Arts, um, which is a research firm that is going to really make sure that these companies who have signed the pledge are really making progress in these in these things that they've promised to do. Are they really diversifying the board, as we said? Are they really hiring black composers and and creating black works? Are they really hiring the racial consultants that they signed that they would do? You know, right. I think those are the things in the long run that are really going to make sure that we stay on a positive track having a professional, you know, there are people who do this professionally um, and hiring that third party uh, racial consultant, I think is my number three, not in terms of important, but really necessary. Um, one of the most important parts of the pledge. Yeah. Holding the opera houses and companies um, that have signed on to this pledge accountable is one thing. What is your, or maybe even what is BOA's response to the opera companies who won't sign to sign on to this pledge? You know, that's still kind of in the works. <laughs> We're still really hoping that people will come from a positive place in, um, in wanting to create a, a, a positive world and creating a safe space for their audience. Mm -hmm. You know, I would hope that everyone has that goal that we want to be inclusive 
and reflect the world around us. I really want that to be everyone's goal. At the end of the day, we do know that racism exists, as we have seen very strongly in the last few years. Um, and even in the last few days with the storming of the Capitol, we've seen that not everyone has the same perspective. Um, but ideally, the goal is that if you want to have a place in the current in the current world, you have to respond to reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want your opera company to survive, you have to be in the now. And the now is not, <laughs> it's not uh, a country club, you know? Right. It's not fur coats and strings of pearls as it's it was. It's not. Yeah. It's just not. And if you stay that way, you will die, you know? Yeah. And so even if just for survival, I don't think it's truly an option to ignore the issue. Yeah. Um, so I, I just hope so many companies have signed on already. And it's such a beautiful thing to see, especially like in the beginning, all these companies were like, okay, what can I do? Here's, here's what we have. How can we grow? And I hope that that energy of all of their colleagues and the, the, the movement that the industry is making will really make it no longer an option to sit in silence. Yeah, yeah. Something that I've been doing in my own personal speech and applying to the way I view certain issues is replacing the word but with the word and. So mm. something something that I definitely uh, wanted to ask you before we wrapped up here, it's one thing to make these predominantly white organizations more equitable. It's another thing to uh, for black folks to start their own and build and maintain their own. Is I, I consider that a an and situation. I believe we need both of those things. I wonder what your thoughts on that are. 1000%. I mean, one of the great things about BOA is we have so many members and everyone has their goals. You know, we have a group of administrators that their goal is to create these black companies that are especially uh, focused on programming works from our community and hiring our singers. Um, and we're all hands on deck supportive of that. We have other singers who really just want to like get out there and just be a part of the mainstream world and be on the greatest stages in the world, you know, mm -hmm. and we hands all hands on deck support those people. And it's just, as you said, it's a yes. And just, that's actually my life policy. Yes. And a lot of young, you, you spoke about what are the benefits also of BOA. Um, in terms of the community, it's joined so many of us in a way that we never knew was possible. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden in my inbox on Instagram, I hear from so many young singers like, look, look, you sang here, how did you get there? And then I'm like, okay, this is what you need to do, blah, blah, blah. And we can strategize together. Um, this is one of the beautiful things about BOA. So all of that is necessary. It's definitely an and situation. We need options for our uh, our young artists they need to be able to choose where they want to sing you know it should be that if you work hard and the talent is there you will have options you know that's the ideal world um 
And so I think if we continue searching after, not searching after, if we continue... Um, Maybe pursuing. Pursuing yeah. um, this route of really creating opportunities, which are what the world needs anyhow, I think we'll be able to create just the world we want to see, you know, where a young singer can work hard and make it. And all of these inequities are no longer boundaries towards our hearing the next great Shirley Verrett or the next great Grace Bunbury or Morris Robinson, mm -hmm. or, you know, it should be that great voices, we're going to hear them because everybody wants to hear them. It benefits all of us if we can hear great voices. And that's the purpose of BOA. Before I ask you how folks can learn more about BOA and more about you, uh, I wanted to loop back around to the idea of black folks not being a monolith. So it's no problem for me to grab a bottle of bubbly, maybe some popcorn, um, sit on the couch and watch Don Giovanni for two and a half hours. The magic, that is not a problem for me. That is not the case for all black people. So <laughs> what, what would you uh, throw out there to the black person specifically listening as a point of entry into the world of opera, just getting them used to um, enjoying and appreciating the general aesthetic of what opera can offer? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm going to uh, give myself a little... Uh, cap in my feather, whatever the feather in my cap yeah. or whatever it is. But I always strive to create what I want to see. And that is exactly what you said. So literally this summer, I took, uh, in the middle of a lockdown, um, I had just sung Roberto Devereaux at LA Opera and I had sung Sara. Uh, this is by Donizetti. And um, I was sitting at home. I was feeling really low. And it was in the middle of all of the turmoil, all of the social justice marches that were happening. I was going out on marches and, and I just felt so passionate about all of these things. It was in the middle of the formation of VOA and, and all of that was just weighing heavily on my spirit. And, and therefore the music, the classical music of Donizetti is what was in my throat. And, and all of that passion was what was in my heart and so I created a music video called To the Afflicted that was a melding point of, of both of those things. And I think because Black Lives Matter is such a huge part of the conversation right now and something that, and the pandemic is something we've lost so much as a community. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are all issues that everyone can relate to. And so I invite you to watch the music video To the Afflicted, which therefore in terms of content is relevant to every black person, to every person in America, but specifically black people. And also it has a chance to hear a bel canto aria that they likely wouldn't have heard any, heard before. And could hardly be performed better, if I may add. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How could folks learn more about you um, and the Black Opera Alliance? Um, so you can check out my website, which is www.rayanne.com or uh, my Instagram at Rayanne Bryce Davis and the Black Opera Alliance. You can find us on www.blackoperaalliance.org. You can slip into our DMs on Instagram or on Facebook. 
uh, at Black Opera Alliance, also a newly formed Twitter that's gonna see some more action in the next few uh, uh, months. Um, and you can always email us, especially if you wanna sign the pledge, if you wanna be part of, part of this energy, you can email us at blackoperaalliance at gmail.com. Well, as I've learned to say, uh, toy, toy, toy. And <laughs> thank you so much, it's been a pleasure. Such a pleasure, thank you, Garrett. As someone, Scott, who works on the audio and visual video, you know, mm -hmm. uh, field, you can speak to, you know, the learning curve and really having to pick things up. But for Rayanne to uh, produce the content that she has, the Donizetti that uh, we outro there, mm -hmm. I think it really just speaks to the height and responsibility that we all have trained musicians having to take on uh you know, learning how to create content to share perspective and, and to share art. Folks like you, you know, who are trained in content creation and editing and things, having to elevate your skills in a different way when it comes to equitable conversation. And so sure, I, I think that's just a really great example of all of our heightened um, responsibilities. Uh, if, you, if you would like to learn more about uh, Rayanne and what she's doing out here, I'll have uh, a link to her website in the description of this. If you would like to uh, learn more about the Black Opera Alliance. If you are involved with an opera institution uh, that you want to sign on to the pledge, uh, you can learn more at blackoperaalliance.org. It's really, it's really exciting for me to see, Scott. I have to admit to you, I used to think of opera singers as a lost cause, just <laughs> slaves to respectability. But as you can see, they are collecting names and letting everybody know who is safe for us. I'll, I'll, before we get into the final movement, I'll just quickly mention, um, in one of the leadership council meetings, uh, one of the summits actually, the idea came up of a green book for opera houses and ultimately arts organizations. So if you remember back in the day, civil rights era and before, you know, there was the green book that black folks would get that said, okay, when you're traveling here, this is a hotel you can stay at. This is a gas station you could get. Mm -hmm. What if we had that for arts organizations? This is an orchestra that is going to listen to what you have to say as far as programming new folks. This is an arts institution that has this many black folks. This is a radio station that does whatever. That's coming down the line. Mm. And it's going to be harder and harder for folks to make excuses because we're going to have all the data there, right? So, Probably. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Shout out to Black Opera Alliance. And uh, let's get into this triloquy here. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress... Our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. And this is what we are faced with. 
And this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. I love sharing that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. We, it was a, a downbeat one time. Um, but I think it's one that's in, important to bring up talking about, you know, the financial implication. We talk about the spirit of people's hearts and let's all get along together. But there there are actual physical resources that have to be given up. And Dr. King acknowledged that. He also acknowledged in uh, what I think is my favorite writing of his the white moderate. So let me read something for you here. And for folks who don't know, this comes from the letter from the Birmingham jail. Dr. King says, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. The way I apply this to the art, Scott, is the fact that when we talk about the lack of of equity we're seeing in classical music institutions and otherwise, that lack of equity isn't being perpetuated by the KKK or or the Proud Boys mm -hmm. or the Boogaloos or whoever is out here. It's by well-intentioned white people who will put together a fellowship program, who will post a black square, but will not actually engage communities that are being ignored, A, and B, as you spoke to in the second movement with that Elton John song, not make amends, okay? Um, what's your reaction to those words by Dr. King talking about the white moderate, folks who are more comfortable with peace than justice, folks who are standing in the way to a greater degree, in his words, than folks like the KKK? Uh, guilty as charged. I, 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 I have been, I have been and probably am to a degree the white moderate. And I think that every white person is going to have to come to grips with the idea that as you work to rid yourself of any white supremacy, racism in your own head, in your background, um, you can't ask for a reward for doing the work. You can't uh, want, expect a pat on the back for doing the right thing. So just be prepared to look like the white moderate for a while, because uh, it, it, you're, you're not going to be able to talk about the things that you are doing until somebody directly asks you, a asks you. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Or And I don't want it to be lost on anyone. OK, it's great to talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as this person bringing us all together. Kumbaya. As we also see here in his letter from the Birmingham jail, so you know, first of all, we see how how what the reaction to peace was. He was killed, you know, mm -hmm. we all know that. But even as we see here in his letter from the Birmingham jail, he went to jail. It was illegal for him to be black and peaceful, went all the way to jail. And in that jail, he had time to realize that these folks out here in these positions of power, in these institutions, in these organizations, perpetuating white norms, Eurocentricity um, in classical music, as we talk about here, in his opinion, they were worse than the KKK. And I know that's hard for a lot of white people to hear and really center. But I think if you apply that, if one applies that to themselves, they can really understand the levels of work 
that have to be done. It is so frustrating, Scott, for me to watch my words here and watch my mouth here because there are some folks that I could really call out. The Black Opera Alliance is doing that work. You know, they're being very direct Mm -hmm. with the changes they want to see. I don't know that it's so useful for me to sit here and um, call out some white moderates who I would agree are worse than the KKK, as much as I want folks to go back and study Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, really read his writings beyond I Have a Dream, and see if you are in line with that dream. See if you are in line with what he believed in when it comes to anti-capitalism, um, true peace. You know, uh, he was you know very much against the Vietnam War. You know, something that I wasn't here for, but I understand that there were huge political implications there. There's so 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 much work to be done, and you know, as I think about. Um, this coming out on the day of the inauguration, looking for not white allies, but white accomplices. You know, think about, Scott, the accomplices that some of those rioters had as far as police letting them in and the accomplices that they may have at the inauguration. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is the level that we are looking for. We have, we've already featured the International Society for Black Musicians on this podcast, you know, Katie and Delaney them, uh, the Black Opera Alliance. There will be other institutions um, and initiatives coming up that are run by black people for black people. Why? Because white moderates are gatekeeping and firing us from jobs and have the nerve to get some sorts of uh, internships and fellowships together before they even make amends with their original sins. I think uh, I think I better leave it there, huh? Yep, for now. So once again, if you are listening to this, first of all, Scott, I guess we should say if this is on the air, I guess not all has gone to shit because the grid is still up. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, good luck, y'all. We have a lot of work to do. I'm hoping that there is no violence in the background of your listening to this when this comes out as far as the inauguration. Unprecedented time calls for unprecedented action. That's what I'm trying to do. I hope that you'll try to do that as well. Uh, see you next week.